0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and it's good to have you listening. In the weeks leading up to Father's Day, that half-conscious calendar in my brain kept pinging me to buy a card, get it off in the mail in plenty of time. And each time that it did, I had that second of unknowing, followed by those moments of knowing. That's right, there was no need to buy a card this year and scramble to mail it off, as there hadn't been for the two father's days before this one. It was my brain still trying to map my dad in a world he no longer lived in. In her new memoir, Catherine Schultz contemplates the losses that accumulate in our lives and the joy and love that is found, sometimes right alongside those losses. She writes, in quick succession, I found one foundational love and lost another. And ever since, both the wonder and the fragility of life have been exceptionally present to me. Catherine Schultz is a journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner. Her new memoir is titled Lost and Found, and she's with us this morning from Maryland. Catherine, welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
1: It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much.
0: You write in that passage about finding love even as you lost another and that it opened your perspective to how vulnerable love is to forces beyond your control. I wondered if you'd reflect on that. Take our listeners through the realization of that, if you would.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, I hope most of your listeners know from experience how dazzlingly wonderful it is to fall in love you know it just it's so thrilling your life can change literally from one day to the next and the world just seems magnificently uh, larger and more marvelous and at the same time uh just just tiny and intimate and kind of built for you and this person you've fallen for in this in this wonderful way so if, you know it's by and large this experience of, of joy and excitement and maybe above all else a sense of A whole future existing where it didn't used to you know you kind of look down the road of the life you're hoping to have together and and that's so joyous and wonderful but of course the price we pay for falling in love or or for loving anyone or anything is that there's this you know tiny little piece of knowledge built into that which is that we are not going to get to have it forever you know, even in the best case scenario where, you know, no one leaves someone, there's no, there's no, you know, messy divorce or, or unnecessary early ending. Uh, you know, we are mortal creatures and our loves are mortal and they perish along with us, uh, at least, at least in this world. And so, you know, anytime that you have one of these kinds of incredibly joyful experiences, uh, whether it's about another person uh, or, or just, you know, one of those moments of feeling so much, gratitude and and, uh, wonder about being alive. There's always this like tiny little bit of sorrow, I think that smuggles in with that, which is the the knowledge that all this, you know, it's it's, in the scheme of things, it's fleeting and we have to learn how to make our peace with the fact that all these things that we love we're we're someday going to lose.
0: I mean, especially when you have the kind of experience that you did, which is, I think your father... Got his diagnosis what eighteen months before you met your partner what was the what was the timeline?
1: yeah, I met my partner uh, about a year and a half before my father died, and uh, you know what that meant in practice was you know we sort of got one of everything you know we got one Thanksgiving and one hanukkah and one new year's and, and one of my parents' anniversary and uh, and that was that you know there was kind of one beautiful turning of of the cycle of life that had both my father and my partner in it and and then my dad died and there's no question that you're right that 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 underscored for me what I think is, is true but sometimes more covertly true for all of us which is this way that our our love and our grief and our joy and our sorrow are inextricably entwined and and, you know the moment you let love into your life which of course we all should you know and and this is not a this is not an argument against love to, to be very clear but the moment you let it in you you are rendering yourself vulnerable to the inevitability of loss yeah i mean
0: there just to just to linger for a minute on what you were saying about this sense of indomitability right you fall in love and you think Nothing can touch us. I mean, you're, you're bulletproof in some ways, right? You have that illusion, and that's part of the wonder of being in love. But to have a parallel experience of not being ready to lose a parent and knowing that there is that, that illusion of indomitability is gone from this relationship with your parent, that's, that's what I think is so resonant, and that, that's, I think, what you were working out. Right to have this kind of parallel experience of that, yes.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you use the word parallel. I sometimes think about a kind of mirror image. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that uh, losing a love, a father, you know, a, a beloved family member, and and finding love, falling in love, are in some ways strangely similar experiences. You know, I mean, the, the emotional valence is obviously uh, completely inverted because grief is grief, uh, and, and and falling in love is as I keep saying, joyful. It's really the best word I know for it. It's it's such a wonderful and, and world opening experience. And of course, losing someone makes the world smaller and and darker and and far more difficult. And yet for all these kinds of evident differences, these are both consequences of love, right? You know, we, we only grieve what we deeply loved and, and a part mm-hmm. of grief is about remembering and cherishing what we loved about someone and, and returning to memories that uh, at least before they were sort of tinged by grief were, were joyful and beautiful ones. So yes, they're, they're, are parallel tracks, they're mirror images, you know, whichever of these uh, kind of spatial metaphors make sense to listeners. I, I think we all have this experience again, whether or not you have the kind of slightly uncanny one that I had where, you know, here I am kind of, I'm losing this foundational member of my, of my family of origin, right, when I'm making a family of my own, we all, I think, live with this kind of um, complexity of emotion where, where our love and our grief are, are so intertwined. You know,
0: I mentioned in the introduction that I was aware, having lost my father several years ago, that my brain was still trying to map you know, where my late father was in the world and that that dissonance really lasted for longer than I guess I would have expected. And I understood this better when I had a conversation with University of Arizona researcher Mary Frances O'Connor. She specializes in studying grief. And well, I thought this might be interesting to you too, having had the kind of experience you've had about how we try to map our loved ones, even though they're gone. Let's listen. Because our loved ones are so important to us, the brain devotes a lot of space to keeping track of where they are. So if I say to you, how would you find your partner right now? You can probably tell me where they are or when you'll see them next. And all of that is encoded by the brain. So By knowing how to predict what our loved ones are doing and our sense of closeness to them, there is a way the brain actually tracks where they are. The other example is sometimes you'll say, oh, gosh, I wish I could picture you in your new apartment if someone, a good friend has moved. And that's because your brain really wants to understand where someone is that is very
1: important to us. Catherine, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that that's exactly right. You know, our minds are consumed uh, consciously and unconsciously all the time with the whereabouts, the activity, the well-being of of those we love. Uh, And in some ways, if someone you love dies after a long sickness, that's almost more true because you really have been quite consumed with how are they, you know, where are they, Mm -hmm. is everything okay? There's there's a kind of extra level of anxiety kind of running through that baseline current of like, okay, where is everyone? How is everyone? And I think it's, it is intellectually extraordinarily difficult to accept the simple fact that someone who was once here no longer is. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a lot of what I am writing about in this, in in wrestling with this idea of loss, you know, this notion that, that something can be there and then it just isn't there. And we all experience a kind of omelette, mundane version of that when you know you like bring the mail in from the mailbox and set it on the kitchen table and it absolutely vanishes and and you have this kind of lighthearted but still maddening version which is like how is this possible <laughs> i remember doing this i brought it and i set it down it's completely gone you know and and you feel a little crazy and you start invoking these kind of impossible things you know like goblins or ether you know your your mail has somehow vanished into a wormhole or something but we experience this really upsetting and strange and and sobering version of that when, when someone really has, has vanished in that same way. And I think this idea that we just kind of automatically, some part of our brain cannot adjust to that, and, and we automatically just repopulate the person, as you did when you, you had this sort of nagging inner sense, which I really identify with, of like, there's something I'm supposed to be doing, all oh, right it's like Father's Day, I, I have to, right. you know, get a card in the mail, I got to remember to call that day. And, and that train just keeps on going down its track until it is very rudely interrupted by, by the reminder, that, you know, actually, no, there's, there's no one to send that card to. And I hear you, you know, I mean, at some point when I was working on this book, I was trying to remember a um, detail about my father's life. My dad um, had a had a very interesting life. He was a Jewish refugee to this country. And I was trying to remember a detail from that story and make sure that I got it right. And I, Without thinking of it, you know, reached over. I was lying on my couch, on my laptop, on top of me. I'm writing away. I reached over to pick up my phone. You know, like there I am, literally writing about my grief over my dad's death, and and yet my mind's unconscious solution to the problem of trying to come up with this fact was like, well, call dad.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, the other part of this is the emotional. I, I had to adjust to the idea that. The thing that was in one of the things that was important to me was thinking about how my dad would receive the card or receive the phone call. It was so habitual to think not just I'm sending it out into the world, but also thinking about how he was going to receive it and what it would be like when we started to plan our next visit. I mean, I weirdly, this science that, uh, Mary Frances O'Connor explained, really made a huge difference for me. I mean, even in an emotional sense, and I, I've been trying to work out why, so I bring it to you because you're wise. Why do you think understanding of just the brain chemistry helped with the grief?
1: Well, you know, I think that explanations are incredibly comforting to all of us. Uh, and and you sound like you might a camp which is the the standard explanation for where your father is and, and what's happened uh, in your life uh, or what happened in your life when he died did not serve which is to say I'm guessing uh, because the brain chemistry explanation was so comforting that the the theological explanation was not somehow sufficient mm. you know you, you didn't have a mm-hmm. sense of oh, you know, well, my, my father is, is gone from this life, but yes. some essence of him exists and he's, he's watching over me or, or he's mindful or, you know, you know he, he endures in some form. And, you know, if that kind of explanation is not a comfort to you, uh, which is true, uh, even for, for plenty of the devout, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a great admirer of C.S. Lewis, who was a very sincere and very knowledgeable Christian, who found his, his Christian faith was not comfort at all when his wife died. You know, if that explanation is not comfortable, or rather comforting, uh, it it makes sense to me to to go search for another. You know, because I think one of the most difficult things about death is it actually kind of resists all explanation. It is a fact. It is the basic fact of our existence. We are mortal. Literally, by definition, we die. It's in some sense should not be a surprise to any of us. And, and yet, we have absolutely no access to what happens beyond that. And, and what it means in particular for the person who has died. You know, which I, part of the comfort of imagining your father opening the, the card. And it's not just you and your routine. It's him and his routine. Is, is We have access to that. We have memories of it. We have knowledge of it. We have a way to populate it. And we have no way to populate the experience of dying or the experience of being dead. And I think that's really profoundly upsetting. I think it's as upsetting as just not being able to pick up the phone and call your dad or send a card and, and have him call you and say, thanks for the card, honey. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the absolute impossibility of passing beyond that, that border until we do, <laughs> at which point we can't pass back and share any information. I, I think that's a lot of what's just so, so difficult, the sense of you're yearning desperately for connection, and connection is exactly what you don't get to have.
0: I'm glad you brought up faith. I want to talk about that, but let's uh, remind our listeners who we're talking to and what we're doing here. If you've tuned into Big Books and Bold Ideas, you hear a conversation with Catherine Schultz. She's a journalist, Pulitzer Prize winner, new memoir is titled Lost and Found, and we're talking, as you've listened at the beginning here, we're talking about what Catherine calls the mirror experiences of finding a a deep love even as you realize how vulnerable that love is because as she notes we are all mortal someday you will lose that love and if you've got aging parents that's going to happen sooner rather than later so we're in conversation about that were any of the the Jewish traditions that accompany the death of a loved one helpful to you i i get the sense that you would identify as an agnostic is that is that right
1: borderline atheist yeah okay but that's an interesting question i certainly find um, judaism very meaningful which might seem like a strange thing for a, a borderline atheist to say um, because I do, of course, understand that the core of Judaism is about faith (laughs) faith in God. Uh, And yet it is, of course, also a culture and a tradition and a lineage uh, and uh, a very embattled minority experience. You know, to be Jewish is to be many, many different kinds of things, and you can attach yourself to any strain of that. You can attach yourself to the embattled tradition. You can attach yourself to the intellectual tradition. You can attach yourself to the theological tradition. And in my case, you know, my parents are both Jewish. Uh, my father, uh, as I said, was a Jewish refugee who was born in Tel Aviv, lost uh, almost his entire maternal line in Auschwitz uh, by the time he could walk uh, and was sort of kicked about the, the world by the combined forces of geopolitical violence, much of it having to do with the, the effort to eradicate Judaism from the face of the earth uh, and, and you know, poverty on top of that until he landed in this country. And he himself... Was not a devout man, but it was very important to him that his children grew up knowing they were Jewish and understanding what that meant. And you know, they did. My parents took us to synagogue, and I was raised in the Jewish faith. And I find it beautiful and complicated and difficult and meaningful, pretty much in equal measures. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I am grateful for those traditions and and uh, grateful to be connected to them, but. I can't say that the kind of comfort they provided me with at any moment was existential. You know, you heard me say, I, I wish I could uh, sort of summon faith in the enduring existence of my father. You know, I mean, to the extent that Judaism would even offer that is a, a, it's a, it's a complicated question. But I myself, um, I didn't turn to Judaism for comfort after my father died because I didn't turn to faith in general. I I think my my inmost being, as I said, for whatever reason, does not naturally orient that way. And so in in quite difficult ways, I had to turn elsewhere. I envy those for whom faith is a comfort. And I do think you're right, that part of that comfort isn't just the sense of, oh, you know, there will be some kind of reunion on on some farther shining shore. It's it's knowing what to do. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like we sit Shiva or, you know, we these are the prayers we recite. These are the, you know, psalms we sing. This is this is what happens. And, you know, one difficulty about being disconnected from a tradition like that is it it's not as consoling. And so you have to kind of flail your own way through grief without those sort of um, guide rails, as it were, to, to help get you through it. It sounds like for
0: as disconnected, to use your own word, um to that faith tradition, you are, your wife has a strong Lutheran-denominated faith. I, I think this is right, that she worked as a hospital chaplain for some time. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, my wife is a devout Lutheran. She grew up in the Lutheran Church. Uh, she studied theology after college uh, and quite seriously considered joining the ministry, did did work as a hospital chaplain, uh, and has done you know a a certain amount of preaching and officiating uh and and for her uh that that faith is everything that it isn't for me you know it Mm -hmm. does i think ground her uh in in both everyday moments and in these sort of momentous uh kind of existential shifts in our lives falling in love grieving Uh, it, it helps her make sense of the world and certainly helps her make uh, it helps her help other people make sense of the world. I think she's a, a profoundly wise and, and comforting presence uh, in these in these difficult moments. So, yes, a, a beautiful and interesting thing about our marriage is that we, um, we come from kind of doubly opposite traditions. You know, I, I was raised a Jewish and emerged as an extremely skeptical, extremely uh, secular creature, and, and she was raised Lutheran and emerged with an absolutely abiding and unshakable faith
0: you know i wondered about this then that when you were going through your father's decline and realizing that it was it was headed um for death whether your partner had to i mean chose to be or or had to be restrained in the way that she might talk about what happens after death or the meaning of death to you? Because wouldn't the the instinct for somebody who is so deeply grounded I grew up Lutheran, I I understand the tenets that she that she observes. Um, you know it would be a natural thing to want to not offer superficial explanations but to share the meaning of that. I If she balanced that well it's extraordinary and it sounds like she did.
1: She did, and I wish you were on air with us because it's a totally fascinating question. <laughs> I do too. I Go get to her. To her. And I, <laughs> I will do so when we... <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I certainly if she ever had any impulse to try to either comfort me or simply, you know, on her own terms, react to my father's death by recourse to the faith she has that I do not share, I never heard her do it, you know. And I think that I imagine actually some of that might have been uh, the experience of working as a hospital chaplain, meaning my my mm. wife sat with the sick and the scared and the dying and sat with the, with the loved ones of the very recently deceased. And I imagine, and, and maybe this is something learned or maybe this is just who she is or both, you know, I, I don't know that, um, I think you have to be very, sensitive in such situations to when what is called for is a kind of um, interjection of of your own opinion Mm. and and your own sense of the faith and and when some kind of theological explanation will be welcome. uh, And when in fact, people simply need to feel seen and heard and tended to and need a solemn and loving Presence who who makes inquiries about what's needed, which frankly sometimes is like a bagel in the morning newspaper. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the, the, the things people need in these moments, even for the even among the mm-hmm. devout, right? You know, it's, it's very easy, I think, to share a faith and, and not share a. Desire for a specific reaction in a specific moment in the face of grief. So, you no, know, I mean, my wife was an unbelievable comfort to me while my father was dying, and of course, after he was dead as well. But you know, that comfort, uh, part of it is presence. You know, she is she is appropriately calm and clear eyed and grave in the face of death. I'm actually not very calm in the face You're of death. You're not. Um, oh. So, so she. I you know I I. Um, I really dreaded losing my father Um, and also it was very difficult to know whether we were losing him. You know, it's, it's hard to know when, when sickness becomes the final sickness. You know, there was a a lot of, I think this is true for a lot of people. There's a lot of um, confusion and uncertainty, especially in the case of someone like my dad who, you know, effectively died of stage four old age, meaning there was, there was no clear, cause. There was no clear trajectory. There were a lot of systems failing. There was a lot of confusing information. And, um, you know, I, 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 I hope I'm not a disaster who, who sort of falls apart, but I wouldn't really say that I'm steadfast and calm the way she is. And, and also she really just had a lot of experience with the dying. And so at the point when we chose to put my father in hospice care, it was, you know, incredible what a comfort was to me to be able to turn to her and say, can you just tell me, like, what's this going to be like? You know, literally in kind of specific Mm -hmm. ways, like, you know, down to, like, when he dies, like, you know, will he be cold and when? And will he look strange? I mean, just the kinds of things. I had had lost people I loved before, Mm -hmm. but I had not lost them while sitting by their side, you know? And I... There was a lot i didn't know and there's a lot as a culture we we don't know about death anymore until we kind of walk through it ourselves because a lot of it does happen kind of behind doors and and isn't necessarily as talked about as it once was or, or or simply as kind of unavoidable as it once was and uh yeah it was it was an enormous comfort to me her calmness in the face of death, and I do think that calmness is born, and part of it's characterological, but but it's born of faith, you know, some of it, I'm sure. So her faith was a comfort to me even without her making recourse to her faith, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> she does sound incredibly wise. Um, you know, I had one other question uh, about, that I, that I remembered as I was reading uh, the memoir, and I forgot to make a note on it, but you've reminded me of it. I, I often the parents of um parents who are immigrants especially given what your father went through as you just said losing family to a concentration camp and enduring poverty and then coming to this country and making the kind of success of his life with that zest for life that he that he inhabited you know i there's an interesting thing that happens between that generation and the children of immigrant parents about the idea of American exceptionalism. And I I wondered if your father carried that sense of American exceptionalism, and you as a skeptic, a journalist, who you are, right, just your character, how you saw that, how you think about that.
1: What a wonderful question, and one I haven't been asked, actually. Um, My father was a great patriot. He truly loved this country. He was unbelievably grateful for what it gave him. He was unbelievably mindful of what it gave him. I mean, my dad, you know, came to this country at age 12 speaking not a word of English to parents who spoke not a word of English and barely had a dime to their name. And he had come through violence of every kind and poverty and difficulty and dysfunction and trauma of every kind uh, by the time that he got here. And, you know, what did he find? He found a free public school system. He found a free public library down the block from him that became his absolute haven. He found very dear friends who were his friends until the day he died. Uh, He found a a university system where he could be educated. And I think he had the real sense that for him, in a moment of need, this nation provided what it purports to provide, which is a, a beacon of hope and a chance to make for yourself a future that was not preordained by your past. And in fact, that's what happened my father. But the thing that I absolutely admired and adored about my dad is he never confused his own success for the inevitability of success.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I never once heard him say or feel that because he had done it, everyone should be able to do it. I never once heard him make recourse to the notion that, you know, he was able to pull himself up by the bootstraps so everyone else should be able to also. I think he was incredibly mindful of strokes of very good fortune he had of specific individuals who intervened and helped out and watched over him and far from him hauling on his bootstraps, picked him up and gave him a leg up. And he saw all around him how fragile that was and how for every time it happened, there was a case or 10 cases or a thousand cases where it failed to happen. Most notably in all the people who actually just never got the chance to be here in the first place. And he never forgot that. You know, it was my father's family waited a very long time to get visas to come to this country. And he knew how many people close to his family, you know, who had come through the same war as the host were never given that opportunity. And he knew how many people who once here, for whatever reason or set of reasons, never got the opportunity. So he was a great patriot. He loved the ideals of this country. Truly, he thought the Constitution was a marvel, an imperfect marvel, but a marvel. He loved the law. He was a lawyer, and he loved and and, and believed in a, a great and shining vision of this country. But he also believed, down to his last molecule of DNA, that the things we truly love Deserve our criticism and our efforts to make them better, and he mm. doing that, and he never thought that this country was perfect. He was not one of these people who couldn't brook you know any kind of complaint against it, and he, as i said uh, was never someone who felt that uh, it's you know this country is is already its you know most perfect self he felt it should be perfected and he saw its many many failures and fought all of his life to make it better. So in that sense, far from there being I know exactly the dynamic you're talking about, but but far from there being kind of daylight between us, I feel I learned an enormous amount from my father about how to love a nation that you are not perfectly at ease in, you know, mm. and how to love a nation whose faults you see very very clearly. And how to commit yourself to trying to make it better. It was And I can't tell you how many times after my father died, I thought about how heartbroken he would have been by some of the great blows to the ideals of this country that, that followed shortly. My father died in September of twenty sixteen, and I on some level I wish he'd lived another forty years, but I'm glad he didn't have to live to see some of some of the things he cherished most about this nation be truly desecrated.
0: I, I was just I was just thinking about that, is he? it sounds like he possessed the most kind of clear-eyed appreciation and love for the country. Journalists, I mean, I I, I don't understand the I will brook no criticism of this nation because exceptionalism means perfection. I don't really understand that kind of thinking. But I know that is comforting. It's comforting to a lot of people who have come here from somewhere else and to people who have grown up here and they feel like America has fulfilled a lot of its promise for them. But it also, I think, initiates a kind of blindness and sense of capability, right? This can change, it must change especially in the last mm. you know what we've what we've endured with the pandemic and i mean on and on right in the last couple of years how do you how do you think of it
1: well you know we talked earlier about uh, this this line in the book grief makes reckless cosmologists of it all and you know i think Life makes reckless patriots of us all, you know mm-hmm. I think that i I share your impulse. I don't understand at all the notion that that those things that we love and cherish in life uh, are are beyond criticism. I just I don't I don't get it. I think it's at odds with practical experience and um, deep you know philosophical ideology as well. But I will say, I can't think of anyone I've ever met who believes that, who doesn't also criticize their country profligately. <laughs> yeah. <good laughs> you know, what, what What I think that actually means is I don't like those other people's. Criticism. <laughs> yes. I mean, exactly. you might, you might feel, you know, love it or leave it. You know, you can never criticize, you know, our country's foreign policy or the, the you know, Second Amendment or whatever it may be. But you yourself are perhaps perfectly comfortable complaining about the amount of, you know, regulation of American waterways or, Mm. you know, whatever it may be, meaning people pick and choose what they think is a legitimate criticism and what is not a legitimate criticism. And they pick and choose what they believe is fundamental to America versus what is somehow not really America. And and that's how we wind up in this insane and inevitably kind of hypocritical, um, self-contradictory universe of you can't criticize this country. And yet, of course, we all criticize this country. The easiest way out of that is, for one thing, to just stop saying you can't criticize this country. <laughs> of course, we all should be trying to make this place better. And, you know, I'm, I'm respectful of, of the kinds of differences that stem from a different vision of better. You know, that's mm-hmm. life in a democracy. People have a different vision of what better means, and they have different visions of how you get there, even if they share the vision. So, you know, disagreement is fine, but the notion that uh, that actually, you know, you, you can't, beg to differ, you can't criticize, you can't find fault. It's it's obviously, as you say, no no road to a better nation.
0: Carrie Miller, you're listening to my Friday book show in conversation with Catherine Schultz about her new memoir, Lost and Found. Uh, I asked if you would read uh, an excerpt from a part of the memoir where um, you have met your partner's family and you're meeting them in a geography of America that is that is pretty important to their identity. Catherine, do you want to say anything before the memoir, or should we talk after the passage, I mean, or whatever, whatever works for yeah. you?
1: Well, I mean, I suppose the thing to say is that... Um, my partner was born and raised in a town so small it does not actually uh, get the name of the town from the, <laughs> <laughs> from the, the census powers that be uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland. And the passage that I'm going to read is uh, describing what it was like to come home to her house For the first time, I'll I'll spare you the several paragraphs preceding it that are that are about life on the shore, and and just focus on uh, that very first visit I made home to her house. Okay. Uh, The only thing you need to know, other than that, heading into this passage, is that I've been reflecting on how astonishing it is to to find the love of your life, especially if you did not grow up in the same place, especially if, in some sense, it seems absolutely wildly unlikely that your paths should have ever crossed, which is how I felt uh, about my partner when I met him. And you need to know that uh, in the context of the book, I refer to her simply as C. Never have I felt this more strongly than on that first visit with C to the Eastern shore. The closer we got to her hometown, the more unlikely it started to seem that we had ever met. Other than a trip to Baltimore in my teens, I had never been to Maryland before knew almost nothing about it, and had only belatedly learned that part of it was out on a peninsula, removed from the rest. When C first told me where she lived, I had struggled to place the region on a map. Now, driving through it, I did not find it any easier to process our location. It seemed impossible that Washington, D.C. was only 90 minutes away. The place we were in felt as remote from the nation's capital as Nebraska. These days, the Eastern Shore is my home as well. And in the years that I have lived here, I have spent so much time in the house where she grew up that it has become a kind of home to me too. Her mother taught me to pick crabs on its front porch. Her father taught me to use a miter saw out in its shed. I have helped repaint the bedrooms and reorganize the crawl space and clean up downed limbs outside after a storm. I have sat in the kitchen shelling peas, sprawled on the couch watching television, brought potato salad and corn on the cob when family friends were coming over for a cookout. Some days I drop by just to pick up a spare key or leave a plate of biscuits. Other times, I laze around for most of a weekend. I have been there in dress clothes and pajamas, have gone there to share good news and to find solace in grief. But on that first visit, I came as a stranger, new to the shore, new to her family, still very much in that phase of love I described as a yearning for information. For many months by then, I had wanted to see the home where C grew up. Now she led me up the walkway and through the door. The archaeological dig out back had long since been filled in and plowed over, but all the artifacts she'd found while excavating it were still inside, neatly organized in a display case she fished out from under the bed. The bookshelves her father had built for her remained in her childhood room, although there was not much else to see there since her younger sister had redecorated after she left. In the living room, I stood for a while in front of a shelf full of photographs of her as a kid, adorable and serious-eyed and scrawny as an urchin, sitting on the church steps with her sisters in identical Easter dresses, standing on a dock holding up a freshly caught rockfish almost as tall as she was, Muddy-kneed in a Little League uniform. I could have looked at them forever, looked at a thousand more. My farmer's daughter, my Rhodes scholar, my devout Christian, with a fierce intellect and a faithful heart, who can recite Eliot and read Greek and run a wood splitter and set a trot line. Before we met, if someone had given me pen and paper and 10,000 years and asked me to describe the person I would one day fall in love with, I would never, in all that time, have dreamed up anyone like her. Where did you come from? I sometimes asked C in those days, in awe and gratitude. Standing there in her house, in the very center of a certain kind of answer to that question, the deeper one did not seem any less mysterious. How, from here, had she come to be who she was? How, from here, had she come to be with me? What an astonishing thing it is to find someone. Loss may alter our sense of scale, reminding us that the world is overwhelmingly large while we are incredibly tiny. But finding does the same. The only difference is that it makes us marvel rather than despair.
0: Katherine Schultz reading from her memoir, Lost and Found. That is so beautiful, Catherine. I mean, the I thought of it as, as you were reading, as a lens kind of zooming in and zooming out and just giving me this really powerful, detailed perspective of of what it means to be in that geography of your loved ones and now be part of it. I mean, how... How integrated do you feel into the, what it means? What are they, the Eastern Shore? How how do they they call people that (laughs) live there? Easterner, Shore? I don't know.
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you for saying that about Uh, the kind of sense of telescoping in and out. I mm -hmm. think that kind of of scale is very interesting to me, and I uh, I'm glad you responded that way because I did try to write it that way. You know, it's funny about the Eastern Shore. I mean, people here draw a distinction uh, between a from here and a come here.
0: Really? Uh, And
1: if you're not from here, you're always a come here. So, you know, on on some almost kind of comic level, uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter that I've been here for quite a while now, and it wouldn't matter if I spent the rest of my born days here. I would still (laughs) be a come here. Uh, But it's a a loving distinction. And, you know, I have found... uh, I have felt incredibly embraced uh, by this place and this community. And part of that, of course, is because my partner's family and my in-laws have just been phenomenally wonderful to me. You know, my, my mother and father-in-law uh, still live on the farm where my partner grew up. Uh, her younger sister lives on that farm as well. It's, it's hmm. about 20 minutes from us, yeah. so we're there all the time. Uh, and and that family uh, has a very deep uh, and, and beautiful Uh, set of ties to the larger community. I think it's uh, you know, it's a a very hardworking and and very respected family who, you know, they're the kind of people who just, they always show up. They are there if someone needs something, absolutely no matter what that need might be. And so they're very beloved. And so by extension, I think I'm very beloved, but, you know, or at least I'm, I shouldn't say I'm very beloved. By extension, (laughs) I am regarded as family, which I think is all any of us can hope to be. And it's quite beautiful to me, to be honest. You know, I, I think that my partner worried uh, when I first moved in with her down here that as a lesbian couple in a quite rural, quite conservative region, we would not necessarily be fully embraced uh, that our um, you know our daughter now that we have a daughter would not be fully embraced mm-hmm. and on the contrary, I have experienced uh, just an incredibly uh, beautiful, beautiful welcome from the people here and I'm very grateful for that i I did wonder
0: um I'm sure you've thought, you've, you've given some introspection to what it will mean to raise a child in that part of America. And not only the reasons that you've just described, the fact that you're two women raising a child, but what it will mean for your daughter to say and be from there. Say that she's from there, be from there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's true, of course, that now no matter uh, no matter where we may someday move, uh, she will always be from here. She'll always have been born mm-hmm. on the Eastern Shore. Uh, she'll be the one, two, uh, three, fourth generation here. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I find that very beautiful and I hope she does too. And I know it's very important to both my partner and me that she feels a connection to this place again, no matter where, where we might someday wind up living, uh, that she understands its its geography and its culture and understands where and how her mother was raised and where and how her grandfather and grandmother were raised. And, you know, I it's on the subject of you criticize what you love, you know, I, I think there are things about this region that, um, you know, don't sit right with me and don't sit right with my partner and that we speak out about and that we work to change. But there are many things about it that are that are very beautiful and there are values my partner was raised with that I hope very much my daughter with. Uh, so, you know, I, um, it, life is funny. I, I meant what I said in reading that passage. I had never heard of the Eastern Shore when I met my partner. And of course right now I'm raising a daughter who that's, uh, you know, it's on her birth certificate that that's, that's where she will always be from. And, uh, I find that,
0: I find that quite beautiful. I know it remind me where you grew up. I grew up in
1: Ohio. Ohio outside Cleveland yeah did
0: you I mean it sounds like you didn't have that sense of this place made me the way your partner has that has that sensibility and so what it was easier for you to say you know I can plant me anywhere that's meaningful to you and I'll I'll see what I can make of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had already kicked around the country and indeed the world a fair amount before my partner and I met, as had she. Uh, the difference is that she is very deeply attached to where she's from uh, in, in in the way my father was a patriot. My partner's a patriot. She loves this country. Loves, she loves where she's from. She's a staunch defender and fierce critic of them both. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I... Uh, I never wanted to return to where I grew up. It's interesting to me, a lot of my high school friends either stayed or left and came back. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in the in the suburbs of Cleveland and in many ways it was a wonderful place to grow up and uh, I'm grateful to my parents for choosing it and I, I had a, you know, went through excellent public schools, have wonderful, wonderful friends. Uh, it's sweet to me to return there. My mom still lives there. But not one iota of me ever for a nanosecond thought I would, I would return myself and set down roots there. And so it's, uh, it's fascinating to me. It's, it's another one of these differences I write about in the book between my partner and me that I, I never wanted to return home. And, and home always has beckoned her back. And I think even if we live elsewhere, you know, some, some part of her will always uh, feel that draw.
0: Karen, um, I want to close with some Alison Krauss, and mm-hmm. I think you'll recognize the song. Maybe we can play a little bit of it, and you can tell me what's meaningful about it. How about that?
1: Sure. Sure. <laughs> it's amazing how you can
0: speak right to my heart. Without saying a word You can light up the dark Try as I may I could never explain what song?
1: (laughs) Somehow you do, which is interesting because if it's in the book, I've actually forgotten it. I have to say two things about this song uh, and I'm I'm actually very moved sitting here listening to it on air. Uh, The first thing is uh, that is the first song my partner and I danced to at our wedding. We both love Alison Krauss. We both love country music in general. Actually, Uh, we entertained a lot of options for our first song. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's interesting. We're both writers. Uh, We both spend our living trying to make meaning out of words and, and that feels incredibly meaningful to us and important to us and we love doing it and yet there is something about falling in love about the basic fact of like this is the one this is the person this is who compels you and, and this is who makes you know like yes yes right now and yes always to this that is it actually does lie beyond language which isn't to say you can't write about it I, I spent you know a solid two thirds of this book (laughs) writing about it and and, and trying with precision to say what's so beautiful about falling in love, but the kind of core, the core attraction, whatever it is, is beautifully mysterious forever. Uh, But the second thing I have to say about this song, uh, which you might not know um, adorably and inexplicably for the first Mm, five months of her life Uh, this song when we turned it on would just immediately put our little baby daughter into blissful sleep (laughs) which was such a wonderful transmutation of our love song into a lullaby and just feels again like the cycle of life this is how these things should work
0: Catherine this has been such a pleasure thank you
1: thank you so much I've loved getting to talk with you
0: Katherine Schultz's new memoir is called Lost and Found.